Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Quick note before we begin today's episode. Hours after we taped today's show, the story that you're going to hear us talk about reached a conclusion. For now. At around 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Wednesday, September 7th, the Globe and Mail's Janet Pruden reported that according to the RCMP, Miles Sanderson, suspect in the mass stabbing attack at James Smith Cree Nation, was taken into police custody near Rosthern, Saskatchewan. Just over two hours later, Mercedes Stevenson of Global News reported that Sanderson in fact died from self-inflicted injuries after police rammed his vehicle off the road. And that's where things are at as I record this on Wednesday night. Here's our episode. Zach Veshera, reporter with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, joining us from Melfort, Saskatchewan. Hello. Hey, Jesse. How's it going? I'm doing okay. Today, we are going to talk about what you're covering, terror and tragedy in Saskatchewan. And we're going to talk about the worst website in the world. Good riddance, for now, to Kiwi Farms. Welcome to Shortcut, Zach, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Catherine G, Annie Corrigan, Victoria Quach, Relena Pitsadowski, Gord Bloy, Sylvain Paradis, Derek Shama, and Mark. My name is Mark, and I'm a communications professional working in the nonprofit sector in the GTA. I support Canada Land because they provide a much-needed critical lens on Canada's media landscape. They support local journalism and amplify lived experience advocacy to provide perspectives not represented in traditional media. (laughs) 
The horror begins before dawn. Emergency calls to the RCMP coming from James Smith Cree Nation. The manhunt for a suspect connected to a stabbing spree in northern Saskatchewan has now entered its third day. Breaking news developments out of Canada. In the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. The manhunt in Canada is expanding after a horrific stabbing spree. Breaking news, a mass stabbing spree in Canada. 15 injured in a stabbing spree. A horrific stabbing spree. In a stabbing rampage. Canada. This kind of violence, or any kind of violence, has no place in our country. Zach, do I have it right that this is like your last assignment for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix? It was supposed to be door knocking on a local by-election in Saskatoon, but yes, this is my last week at the Star Phoenix. When this broke on Sunday, I put my hand up. Hell of a last week. Hell of a last week. I put my hand up basically on Sunday to come up here on what was supposed to be a Labor Day Monday. Like like many of my colleagues at the Star Phoenix, we, we volunteered to help. And I've been here in, in the Melfort area ever since. It's not how I thought my time at the paper would end. Can you give us a brief rundown of, of the story itself and where things are at right now? Early on Sunday morning, before the sun had risen, there were reported phone calls to RCMP about stabbings on James Smith Green Nation. James Smith, for those who don't know it, is a fairly large First Nation, somewhere between Prince Albert and Melfort in sort of north, northeastern Saskatchewan. There are fewer than 2,000 community members on reserve. The calls came quite frequently and it wasn't long until the RCMP had issued a province-wide emergency alert. Phones across the province just blared with this warning. What we understand to have happened now, Jesse, is that two brothers, Damien and Miles Sanderson, are believed to have begun stabbing people on, on the nation again, before the sun had had risen, and and some believe possibly while they were literally asleep in their beds. We understand that there was also a stabbing attack in the nearby village of Weldon, which is a population of about 200 people. It's a very small prairie town. The dominating sort of geographic feature are two massive decommissioned grain elevators that kind of sit atop this very small village. It's sort of the kind of horrific tragedy that you don't think will ever happen in a place like this. As things stand right now, 10 people have died, 11 if you count Damien Sanderson, who was later found on Monday dead on the reserve. Miles Sanderson is still at large. It's not known where he is. It's believed he may be injured. And there was a massive manhunt on the reserve for him yesterday, a huge police operation after a reported sighting, but it came up empty. And right now, people here, I think, are, are still very much freaked out and afraid, even as they're trying to work through the process of grieving, given how significant the loss has been here. You know, we're recording on Wednesday morning. It's entirely possible by the time people hear this on Thursday, the story will have progressed. Hopefully they'll have tracked down Miles Sanderson uh, and hopefully nobody else will be hurt. Yesterday, it seemed like this was going towards its conclusion when, if I have this right, on Tuesday, there was a reported sighting of Miles Sanderson on reserve and police surrounded a structure. And then I thought, okay, pretty soon he's either going to be in custody or dead. Turns out that he wasn't there at all. That's the implication. Police have said at the very least that their investigation was unable to find him and they were certain that he wasn't there. I was in the area at the time and I can tell you that there were a huge number of police cruisers that moved into that community. We're, we're talking about dozens in a place where, you know, the roads are made of gravel. It's, it's not where you see that kind of activity. We saw an armored police carrier move in. There was a helicopter overhead. It was a massive, massive manhunt. At one point, there was a guy on an ATV who stopped by me. Uh, who identified himself as a, as a family member of one of the victims. And when I asked what he was doing on his ATV, he said he was searching for them too, because he's not going to be able to sleep, as he put it, until they're also caught. I think that gives you an idea of just how tense things are here. 
Now, it's believed now that that may have just been a false sighting and that people might have seen what who, someone who they thought was Miles panicked and, and made that call. Other people believe that maybe he was sighted, but he'd somehow managed to evade police. I, I don't know how likely that is, given the size of the operation. The last sighting of him that police seemed to believe was credible was in Regina, which is about four hours, three and a half hours drive south. And that was late Sunday morning. So at this point, we, we really don't know where Miles Sanderson is. And the brother, Damien Sanderson, I believe police have said that the wounds that killed him do not seem to be self-inflicted, and they are investigating whether or not his brother Miles had something to do. I guess the implication is, did, did Miles kill his brother Damien as, uh, on the list of people killed? That's certainly the implication. Many people here in Melfort and, and on the nation have told me, mostly off record, that they believe that some people who are victims did fight back and may have inflicted injuries on both Damien and Miles. And it's possible that Damien succumbed to those injuries as well. I think we're in an interesting time here, Jesse, and a difficult time for the media to be reporting on this because there's an incredible amount of speculation fueled by social media and, and very little sort of concrete information, and, and even to a greater degree than there normally is with this kind of tragedy. Yeah, I mean, I can't get my head around exactly what, what the hell happened here. This is not a normal, uh, sadly, mass killings are kind of normal, but mass stabbings are not. Like, I went and looked up on Wikipedia mass stabbings. There's a very short list of them. Like a mass stabbing, I mean, outside of a horror movie or like Kill Bill, uh, I, I I can't contemplate... You know, the usual profile of somebody who's got like a tranche of uh, automatic weapons and very extreme political views or religious views, like there, there are, there is a profile of mass shooters or a high school shooter. There's a profile. This does not match any crime I'm familiar with. No. And I think one thing we, we have to keep in mind is we're not sure exactly and entirely what the motivations are and, and what caused this. Police have said they believe some of the stabbings were targeted and that others were just entirely random. I've spoken to family of, of one victim. Her name was Gloria Burns. She was 62. And she is said to have been killed because she was part of a crisis response team on the First Nation. And she was actually moving and, and trying to help when she was caught up in the violence and, and, and was killed. It, it, it does kind of behoove the mind to understand what happens here. And, and I think it's going to take more time for us to fully understand, you know, what the motivations of these of these two people are. We know that Miles Sanderson has a very lengthy criminal record and a well-documented history of troubles with drug and alcohol use. You know, people I've talked to who knew him say that he was working and trying to turn his life around and that he was sort of on and off trying to quit, get, get sober and, and get himself into a better position and then moving back. But what caused this horrific event, Jesse, I, I agree. We're, we're going to just need more time to figure that out. Yeah, I want to return to his record because that's something that is being focused on in the coverage. But this opportunity to chat with you as you're covering this, what have the obstacles been in, in covering this? Covering a crime that took place on reserve. You're not currently on reserve. You're in the nearby town. Is that right? I'm in a nearby city. That's right. Can you talk to me about what the media is facing there? This is easily the hardest story I've ever had to cover. And that's partially because of the subject matter and the brutality of the crime. It's also because of the barriers media have faced here, some of which I think, frankly, are of our own making. The community of James Smith Cree Nation, its leadership and its chief, Wally Burns, have, have asked for privacy at this time and have actually said that they are barring media from reserve. Now, when they say that, it's not like police are going around and like, you know, apprehending media on reserve. That's not the case, right? You know, you, you can drive through the reserve to get to different places here and there. But I think what's what's happened here, Jesse, is that there's been this incredible crush of media attention on a part of the world that normally doesn't have any local news coverage, basically. 
you know, I was going through Weldon on Monday and, and, and talking to people there. And, you know, there was a news team from Japan. There's news teams from Australia. There's, you know, a huge national contingent here from the CBC, from Global. Toronto Star has a reporter on the ground. Globe and Mail has a reporter on the ground. And I think while many of these reporters, in fact, I would say most of them are coming with really, really good intentions, when you have this many reporters coming from nationally and internationally, it, it's really created kind of a tension and almost a hostility with some residents. When I was, you know, in Weldon, for example, at one point I was, I was speaking with a gentleman in his driveway, just happened to kind of come across him and you know, ask him some questions. I could sort of tell he was going to give me a, a firm but very polite decline in terms of any interview. And then I heard a sound behind me and I turned around and there was a white pickup truck flying towards me. And I sort of reacted. I, I jumped out of the way and a gentleman exited and asked me who I was. I identified myself as a reporter. He told me to fuck off, got up in my face. I said I didn't want to engage with him. He then got chest to chest with my photographer and was, was screaming at him. We, you know, eventually tensions kind of calmed down. And it didn't really occur to me until after that, oh, I think that guy may have actually intended to hit me with his pickup truck. Other residents I've talked to in Weldon were, you know, even on Monday, just sort of a day after this happened, were, were really visibly frustrated and exhausted with the extensive media presence in this really small community, as many of them are kind of actively grieving a neighbor and a person they knew. And then on James Smith Cremation, it, it's sort of at a, at a different level there because of the position the leadership has taken. At one point yesterday, me and my photographer and a couple other reporters were kind of on the side of the road, just sort of figuring out what we were doing next and, and regrouping for a second. And uh, a car rolled up with two people, two residents who, you know, got out, started yelling at us and said, well, you know, you only care about this community now that there's a story there. We asked to speak with them and, you know, sort of understand where they were coming from. They repeated they just didn't want us there. And so we decided the right thing to do was to turn around and, and get a bit of a distance there. But it's sort of this odd situation where, where some residents of the reserve are very, very, very opposed to media being there for really understandable reasons. But we've also heard from a lot of people in the community who actually want to talk to reporters and who are going out of their mm -hmm. way in some cases to, you know, go to neighboring communities because the reporters can't come on reserve. I had a kind of tricky situation where, you know, one gentleman I, let, I met who was an elder actually invited us to his house. He, he gave us his address. He said, I would love to have you and, and, and talk to you. And we were sort of wondering, well, can we do that? You know, is it fair or ethical for us to go on a reserve where they've explicitly said media is not wanted, even if we have this express invitation? And even if we're not, for example, just prowling around looking for interviews, knocking on doors and, and bothering people who may be in a time of grieving. It, it's a really complicated ethical issue made all the more complicated, obviously, by the history of the nation itself and the fact that this is a First Nation in Saskatchewan, where a lot of horrific trauma has unfolded in these communities. What did you do about that invite? Well, we didn't get to follow through on that invite because then the emergency alert went off on Tuesday and we got caught up in the middle of, of that massive police investigation that I mentioned. But what I've decided to kind of do in the future is, is try to contact him and ask if he's comfortable meeting outside the reserve and, and then maybe visiting him in the future. The challenge I think we have here is that when this news broke, because it's so horrific, we saw a familiar playbook play out that, that happens a lot in Saskatchewan. I don't know if you've noticed, Jesse, but there's sort of a trend, and I wasn't here for all of this, so I'll, I'll put that up front. About every year or so, there's a horrific tragedy in this province, it seems, that attracts international media attention and people flying from all over. I'm thinking about the discovery of unmarked graves at Cowess's First Nation, for example. 
You mm-hmm. can also think about, if you'd like, you know, the shooting in the Lush. You can think about the Gerard Stanley trial and the shooting and killing of Colton Bushi. You can think about the humble Broncos crash. You know, all these things inspire just a crush of media coverage from across the world, especially in the days immediately after the event. You know, reporters from all over the globe are coming in. And it creates strain on these communities when they're being asked to, you know, and pressure to, you know, share their trauma on, on that intensity of the scale. And it also creates reputational challenges for reporters as a whole. Because if you're a local reporter and, you're, and your plan is, you know, you're going to stay with this story for the long haul, right? You want to be able to talk to these people in two or three months, or at least your outlet wants to be able to talk to these people in two or three months. There might be a difference in how you approach that conversation versus if you're there from a, from a different country and you only have two days to make a story, right? And I can kind of see everyone up here trying to navigate that line and, and trying to reconcile the, you know, the need for a media presence and the desire of some residents to document what is happening with the opposition from others. It's it's a real conundrum out here. Yeah, I can see that. And yet, of course, especially when there's a killer on the loose, the need for information, definitely for people on reserve, but we don't know where Miles Anderson is. To simply rely on the police for that is, uh, I don't know, that doesn't work either. We need reporters. We do not know enough about this. We do not know the facts of this. Uh, that has not stopped the opinions from coming in. Here's a National Post opinion piece. Uh, Jamie Sarkinak. how many spree killings does it take for the RCMP to be frank, honest, and timely in telling people what's going on? And he writes, it shouldn't have taken police a whopping 90 minutes to warn locals. Well, that's interesting. We know that from the Portapic mass killing, lives could have been saved if they had used the emergency alert system sooner. In this case, it seems like there was, it's hard to tell because there's multiple reports they received of stabbings on James Smith Cree Nation, but we have the time given as 5.40 a.m. I don't know if that's when they got the last of those multiple reports or the first, but it's, uh, it's about 90 minutes later that they put out an emergency alert. That's much, much better than what happened in Portapic, but it still is 90 minutes where I guess we're going to find out in time, I hope, whether or not during that 90 minutes there were more injuries or fatalities. I don't want to judge here, but, you know, 90 minutes, I suppose it could have happened sooner and what went into that. And that that raises questions as to, like, what is the process? Police hear that there have been stabbings on reserve. They're getting that from multiple emergency calls. What prevents them from issuing an emergency alert immediately? And what is their policy following what happened in Portapique for issuing those emergency alerts? Because obviously something was broken in Nova Scotia. And that reminded me, I'm like, didn't I just read something about this? And in fact, it was just August 24th. There's a Globe and Mail story. Uh, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky says there have been no RCMP reforms since the Nova Scotia mass shooting. That story would lead me to believe that they have nothing by way of a new policy, that for some reason in the years that have followed that horrible, horrible blunder, they haven't changed a damn thing. But that's contradicted By earlier news reports, there's a CTV story from June 17th saying RCMP emergency alert policy is in place nearly two years after the Nova Scotia shooting spree and that it's been in place since March, that they've actually fixed this. So I do not know what to believe in terms of whether the RCMP has fixed this problem or not. 90 minutes seems like an improvement, whether it was a consequential amount of time or not, uh, we don't know. I think that's a fair assessment, and we're going to need more details as things come out. What did they know? What did they learn in that 90 minutes? And and why did they take the course of action they took? One thing I will say in general, though, is that this actually hasn't been the only emergency alert that's gone off in Saskatchewan this past weekend. There were, you know, the RCMP also issued unrelated emergency alerts for an incident in Maidstone and another in Spiritwood or near Spiritwood. 
if there is a takeaway here, and I think if you're if you're going to be a little fair to the RCMP, it feels like they're they're almost erring more on the side of caution with the use of these alerts, just given the number that we've had related to this incident already. It, it seems like after Porta Peak, they're aware of the public outcry about their failure there, and they're not taking any chances, Jesse. I don't know why they would. I mean, sometimes I feel like you get an emergency alert that some deadbeat dad has taken his kid away, and you know it's like very far away from you and you're like, well, why do I need to be disturbed by this? But like, you know, killer on the loose who stabbed 10 people, like, like, yes, you can tell people like, it's okay. It's okay. If, if you jump the gun on that one, I'd rather know that that's the case than not. Another opinion that, that ran in the Toronto Sun, the quote unquote progressive theories that drive our criminal justice system. This is Lauren Gunter who looks at this case uh, and a lot of attention is focusing on the fact that this guy was was released, that Miles Sanderson convicted of 59 offenses between the ages of 18 and 31. How could they possibly let this guy go? There's even a line in the parole board records, which is particularly damning, where they say, it is the board's opinion that you will not present an undue risk to society if released on statutory release, and that your release will contribute to the protection of society by facilitating your reintegration to society as a law-abiding citizen. So here we have the tough-on-crime Toronto Sun columnist Lauren Gunter saying, this is pathetic. We have this way-too-soft criminal justice system where, of course, this guy should, should not have been released. And all eyes are on the parole board, and there's been an announcement that they're going to be you know, auditing their, their decision. And I'll admit, that was my first response, too. I thought, wow, 59 convictions and they let this guy go. I don't really consider myself part of the, like, let's get tough on crime crowd, but that that did seem to me to be obviously an egregious error. The more I think about it, Zach, uh, I, like, yes, it would be better uh, that that was, that was a, a, a terrible decision. But, like, is the problem that he was released too soon on, like, what was it, a five-year, four- or five-year sentence? Like, if he'd been, like, do we know that if he'd been kept in, in incarcerated for the full five years, would that have prevented something like this from happening? And then the argument goes, well, the sentence itself was too light, suggests an argument that our system should be locking up people longer than they do, especially violent offenders. We have a, a prison system in which representation of indigenous men is wildly overrepresented. All of this is predicated on the idea that we should have seen this coming. Nobody sees a mass stabbing coming. This guy's history tells of, you know, if anything, you you could expect further domestic abuse from this guy. I think his most violent crime was beating a guy unconscious. I mean, he seems like a very troubled and yes, violent and dangerous person. But the idea that anybody could have anticipated this and that we need to expect that similar things could happen from thousands of other young men in the system, so we should probably keep them locked up, I think is like a fallacy, like a huge leap. Hard cases make bad policy kind of a situation. I think you're you're onto it there. It, it is a bit of, it seems like a dramatic leap to say, oh, if you had kept this person in prison, something of this would never happen again. I spoke with Daryl Burns. He's a brother of Gloria Burns, who was killed in the attacks on Sunday morning. And one thing that Daryl Burns told me that he really believes is that he felt in a way that, that Miles Sanderson and Damien Sanderson are also victims. He said that they were caught in a dangerous and unsafe lifestyle, that they were using substances and, you know, had been battling that for, for some time. And he basically said, look, you know, the bigger issue that we need to be talking about and focusing here is intergenerational trauma on communities like these and what's being done to alleviate that and actually help us heal and, and rebuild. And that was sort of his vision that he took on it. In terms of the actual release of, of Miles Sanderson, 
I understand the parole board is doing a review. I can tell you just this morning, Jesse, that we've got some provincial court documents uh, here in Saskatchewan. Some of the alleged crimes that Miles Sanderson was was convicted of or charged with included an attempted murder on a man named Earl Burns, who is also one of the victims of the Sunday of the Sunday morning attacks, one of the people that was killed. So there is a there is an obvious uh-huh. violent history here with this guy. And I think that's, you know, should rightfully kind of raise questions about how the parole board make this decision. I think it's really easy when something like this happens to say that you saw it coming, but I'm just not sure that's true in this situation. I think that the focus for, I guess, for me as a reporter right now is talking to the people who are here, who are, who are willing to share their stories and, and talk about some of the victims. Because one thing I sure do hope is that these people are remembered as people and, and not as statistics of some horrible thing that happened here. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Zach, we keep track of things that people might otherwise miss. We call it duly noted. Can you uh, duly note something for us? I would love to duly note something for you here, Jesse. There's a great story that was reported here in Saskatchewan that I think has been a little overshadowed by the events of James Smith Cree Nation, which is unfortunate because I think it speaks to some of the same systemic problems that cause things like this to happen in First Nations communities. Jeff Leo is an investigative reporter with the CBC in Regina, and he published a story about basically a failure of Saskatchewan's Ministry of Social Services to check in on a teenager who had been basically reported in danger. Her name was Deliana Severite. She was 14 years old and she was a runaway who was caught up, as Jeff Leo writes, in in sort of a gang lifestyle in Regina. And what Leo was able to find through his reporting is that people had gone to the Ministry of Social Services, who was sort of the registered caretaker for this girl. And it was almost 30 days before the ministry actually would go and do a checkup on her and would, would make, you know, take those concrete steps to find her. And when they found her, she was dead of an overdose. And I, I think what this story really speaks to, which we don't, you know, often examine enough, is you know deep problems with social services in, in Saskatchewan, especially as it pertains to the custody of of Indigenous children in social services. Obviously, there's federal legislation that's coming in that is transferring some of those powers back to you know me- member communities and giving them that oversight. But it's sort of common knowledge here that yeah, like you know, for many people, this is a vicious cycle, and the oversight isn't always there. I think the Ministry of Social Services has a lot of questions here to answer about what happened to Steliana and, you know, whether they're trying to do better. Duly noted. Zach, I have something to duly note. Duly note me. The fans are upset. Here's one story from CNN. When wokeness comes to Middle Earth, why some say diverse casting ruins the new Lord of the Rings series and similar complaints about other fantasy shows. Yeah, the fans, some of them, 
are angry about the casting of black actors in Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. They're saying, look, we're not racist. This is just, it's just, it's just killing the experience for me. It's taking me out of my magical land of fantasy and make-believe. It's hurting the suspension of disbelief. So the first thing that I want to note about this is that I don't give a fuck. I don't care about Tolkien's vision. I don't care. I don't care about the narrative continuity or the internal aesthetic integrity of the Lord of the Rings universe or or, or any other make-believe realm that has dragons in it. I don't give a fuck about that. And I do give a fuck. I try to give a fuck about racial equity. I hope I give a fuck about racial equity. So I'm okay with black actors getting cast in all of your favorite game of the ring and the witch and the wardrobe shows. That's fine with me. I want to start with that. But having said that, Zach, I have to concede to the fanboys. It is kind of weird watching these shows. The first time you see a black elf or whatever, you know, you do kind of pause and do a double take for a second. And the reason for that, and this is what I want to duly note is that the entire genre, the dragons and wizards and shit genre, is itself incredibly racist. It has always been a very British Anglo-Saxon wank. It's a huge racist fantasy land. And I mean, it's not that hard to unpack this stuff, okay? The obvious racial analogies at play, the elves who are like so white that they glow and they're always like the most status. They're like posh, the elves, and they speak with the most refined, you know, upper class British accents. They have their pinkies up when they drink their elven tea and dip their lambas bread into it and everything like that. Absolutely. And then you go down the scale and you've got your little Celtic dwarves and hobbits and they're just good, simple peasants folk dancing little Irish jigs. And then the bad guys are always like dark-skinned monsters from hell. Oh, yeah. And I know that there are fanboys out there who are going to say like, oh, you're the one who's making, who's asserting and projecting all these racial parallels into our wonderful world of magic. Elves are not human races. They're No, Tolkien made this very clear himself. He wrote this in a letter to a friend when he was describing the orcs. He said, uh, what do orcs look like? They have swarthy complexions. They are flat-nosed with wide mouths and slant eyes. They are, in fact, degraded and repulsive versions of the least lovely Mongol types. So, no, is Jesse Brown saying, oh, that Tolkien was a racist? Tolkien was famously an anti-racist. He was one of the least racist people of his time and place. The problem is that his time and place was Britain in the 30s. Right. Okay. And it's true of of his buddy, C.S. Lewis. Go ahead and read one of the Narnia books, The Horse and His Boy, and tell me that it's not like a huge Islamophobic screed. So I know that fans don't want to hear this, but just to kill something that's fun for you, when you are lost in your dream worlds of magic, you are like mainlining white supremacy. So I actually agree with the fanboys that adding black people to the mix of these universes, it does contradict the expectations and and break the laws of these fictional realms. But those laws are like the Nuremberg race laws. So that is no big loss. Right. If our TV shows and our creative media aren't breaking rules, innovating and trying new things, like why are we watching the show? Like, what's the point? I really struggle to reconcile of it. Also, you know, if you're angry that they're casting black actors and actresses in these roles, 
and that's your frustration is is based on how they're described in the books like that that's a level of like extreme like adhesion to the source text that's impossible to uphold like do you want us to find actual elves like should we genetically engineer elves and put them in like like how like you know like how do you how do you expect anyone to reasonably kind of keep up with that i i, I don't know i'm enjoying house of the dragon y'all should watch it uh jesse i, I would say that's pretty duly noted Zach, I want to tell you an awful story. Another one, I suppose. Canadian Twitch broadcaster. Her name is Clara Sorrenti. She's known on Twitch as Keffels, a trans activist and a streamer on the platform Twitch. That's who the story is about. On August 5th, Clara Sorrenti had the police show up at her door. In fact, a team of police officers. She said, on August 5th, I was woken up by London, Ontario police services pointing an assault rifle in my face in my home. I was later told that at 6 a.m. that morning, an email impersonating me was sent to every city councillor in London, Ontario, stating that I killed my mother. Somebody claiming to be her got in touch with the cops and said, I killed my mother. I have an illegal firearm. Here's a picture of it. I plan to go to city hall and shoot every cisgender person I see. And the cops took the bait and went and burst into her home and arrested her and referred to her by her dead name. This is a physical, you know, incarceration uh, coupled with the indignity of being dead named. The cops have since apologized. That's called swatting when that happens. And it was only the most recent for Clara Sorrenti of a whole campaign of really bad doxing and harassment. Her family's phone numbers and addresses had been posted to the internet when she and her fiance fled their home for their own safety and took refuge in a hotel room. She posted a picture so that her fans would know that she is okay. And all the picture was, was like her cat uh, on a bed. Like you can't see anything but the cat and the bed. Well, her tormentors were able to figure out based on the print on the bed sheet, which hotel she was at. I guess there's not that many hotels in London, Ontario. You go through the photos on Google of each hotel and you see, you look for pictures of the bed and they were able to figure out which hotel room she was in. And then they ordered food to her room, which of course is a financial nuisance, but also like that, that is letting her know she is not safe. They found her there. This is a horror show, like beyond most people's comprehension. When we tell stories of internet harassment, there's often an attitude of like, well, that sounds rough, but like sticks and stones, right? Just turn off your computer and, you know, stop being traumatized. If you don't pay attention to the trolls, they can't hurt you. Yes, they can. They found ways to like physically harm this person. And the website where this all came from is a site called Kiwi Farms. Have you heard of it? I have. And like when I first heard that name, I'll admit I was a little bit confused because I was like, that's good that New Zealand is is interested in farming and agriculture. That's wonderful. And then I quickly learned that's not actually what this site is about. No, this site is, I think, like the most recent version of like 4chan, 8chan. And it's it's just a, it's a discussion forum of the worst kind. It's sort of where people are like, how much damage can we do collectively if we distribute the job of harming somebody as badly as we possibly can? Kiwi Farms users target people. They target transgender people. They target neurodivergent people. And they swarm, they, they, they participate in organized trolling, stalking, doxing, swatting. This is like real life harassment. This is a lot of people getting together and trying to figure out all the different ways that they can harm their targets, their victims. This is the website, the forum where the 2019 Christchurch killer, the mosque gunman revealed his intentions hours before carrying out the attack. This is a bad website. Clara Sorrenti launched a campaign to take Kiwi Farms down. 
She was helped by activists and journalists in her efforts to shut it down in a campaign called hashtag drop Kiwi Farms. On Saturday, major tech security company called Cloudflare, I guess, full disclosure, we use Cloudflare. But this is interesting because there's this whole discussion about like hosting. You know, are you are you going to host this malicious website? And a lot of the providers say, we don't want to make decisions about who's good and who's bad. You know, th that would be like the telephone company saying, we're not going to give you a phone line because of the bad things you say over the phone. We don't want to host you. Cloudflare doesn't actually host anybody. Cloudflare is a protection. It's a shield. Because when people try to take down a website, they can do what's called a DDoS attack where kind of anybody can get like robots, get computers to target an overwhelming amount of false traffic on a website that knocks it off the internet. And my understanding is that what Cloudflare does is it says, okay, all of these fake traffic requests are coming from uh, Taiwan. So we're just going to block all traffic from Taiwan. And then we're going to actually get more focused and block it from these IP addresses. So anyhow, as soon as Cloudflare stopped protecting Kiwi Farms, it's knocked Kiwi Farms off the internet. Wow. Uh, does Kiwi Farms have like an alternative it can go to in terms of like another security company that can provide a similar service? They do, but there's a Russian-based provider that also dropped Kiwi Farms on Monday. This is a whack-a-mole game. This is like a cat and mouse game. Other sites like 4chan and the Daily Stormer, the Nazi site, KKK, whatever site, they played a similar game of, of losing their service providers, host services, and protection security sites. And yes, they, they go off in search of some rogue company or some company that doesn't know or care who they're hosting. And they, you know, you, they, they can always find a way back on to the internet one way or the other. I'm sharing this story because it's wild and, and it, this is a Canadian who's been targeted here. Uh, I first read about this Global News reported on Sorrenti. It only boiled over, I think, after NBC went big with the story. And I think a lot of journalists were like not wanting to mention Kiwi Farms too loudly because they don't want to give it too much attention, you know? Right. At some point, you have to name the site in order to do something about it. This is an awful story, as I said, but there was once like a prediction that this stuff would be happening all over the internet. That, that like if, if these kinds of organized harassment and like online violent campaigns were happening, you know, everywhere and anywhere on Facebook, on Twitter, on people's own websites, like, like that would be impossible, but it, it does seem to me. And I've, you know, been covering these things for many years now that like, it usually is focused on like at one point it was 4chan, at one point it was 8chan. Like, like there are always like these like one or two super malicious sites that you'd hope police could just monitor. And I know they have an anti-swatting list. The cops are very quick to say, your internet problems are your problems and not our problems. But I know that cops don't like being fooled and they don't like being, you know, tricked into arresting people under false pretenses. So I would hope that like, if you know that all of the abuse is concentrated on a handful of malicious sites, if they do get back online, the cops might just monitor them and, and kind of know before that swatting call comes in. I don't know. Is that reasonable? I think that's that's maybe, you know, the best sort of avenue that you have kind of available to you. But like, I don't think we've really found our way around the problem of swatting, right? The fact that anyone can make a report like that to police and police, you know, for reasons like the ones that we discussed today are under a lot of pressure to take those calls seriously. You know, even in, in the example that you just sort of posited, it sounds just absolutely absurd, kind of the, the type of call that's happening here. The question for me always is like, you know, when you find these really noxious communities online and you snuff out kind of the places they're able to gather, do you break their ability to build community or do they inevitably kind of splinter off and find each other again? And I think whack-a-mole is sort of the correct term, right? Because I have no doubt that, you know, Kiwi Farms going down will be a very good thing for the world. 
And I guess my apprehension is sort of like, okay, what comes next? Where do they gather next? And, and how does this proceed? But I at least hope that, you know, some of the activists who have been on top of this can find a little bit of peace now. Yeah, I hope so. And I'm not mourning the loss of this website. I hope it stays down. I am paying attention to some of the impacts, you know, of not this, but previous stories. And this one certainly adds to the case. There's a global movement amongst governments in Canada. We're waiting for our version of it, the, the online harmful content act or something. Because when people hear about things like this, they say there ought to be a law. And they overlook the fact that there are laws. It's illegal to defraud the police that way. It's illegal to harass somebody. It's illegal. Death threats are illegal. All this stuff's illegal. The problem isn't that there isn't a law. The problem is that the laws either are not being enforced or in some cases they're unenforceable because the technology doesn't really allow to figure out, you know, who is behind this and what can we do about it? I'm, I'm wary of what this Online Harms Act is going to do. Like, like what we're going to get is more and more authority for the police and for legislators to deem sites harmful and get rid of them and, and make content itself illegal, you know, expand the category of illegal content. But the existing categories of illegal content do cover this harmful content. It's it's an enforcement issue. It's, it's not that we need a more expansive law. So I don't know. I'm just trying to kind of keep my eye on the ball here of what's actually going on. No, and, and rightfully so, right? Like I, I would hope that if any government had an idea of how to enforce these laws in an equitable like and fair way and to do it quickly, obviously, given the very clear implication and, and possibility of harm, like th- they'd better already be on top of that. And I think the reality is, is that even though we've had the Internet for a long while, we still really haven't figured out how to do this, eh? No. Matt Shortcuts. Zach, thank you for joining me. Jesse, thanks for having me. Okay, we're on Twitter at Canada Land. Uh, you can email me about this show at jesse at canadaland.com. We just announced a new host of our politics show, The Backbench. It is Matea Roach. Go subscribe to that show if you're not subscribed already. Uh, we're so excited to welcome Matea to the network. Zach, where can people find you? Folks can find me at Zach Veshera, that's Z-A-K-V-E-S-C-E-R-A on Twitter. I have a few more days where I'm going to be writing for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix about what's happening up in northern Saskatchewan, and I hope you read my work there. And I hope to be on to something new soon. I guess you'll find out where. Zach, thank you for your coverage of this really, really hard story. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is Andre Proulx. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts and other wonderful things that we really want to get you, please support us. We rely on it. Hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Thank you.